And I'm Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst, a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture, as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. It's October 2022, and we're here with part two of our new format, aptly called Obsession of the Month. This is where we take a deep dive into everything from new metal videos and the best teen comedies to celebrity tattoos. You know, the important stuff. This episode, we're taking a trip to the idyllic town of Victory in California, the setting for Olivia Wilde's much-discussed psychological thriller, Don't Worry Darling. We'll also be taking some time to dig into the PR disaster around the making of this film, as well as some of our favourite on-set fallouts in film history. Just to flag that this is definitely going to be a spoilery discussion, because I don't think it would be possible to discuss... Well, we can't. The true depth of our feelings around this film without some major spoilers. Yeah, I would love to be able to talk about this without talking about the real minutiae of the plot but i feel like that's it's, it's integral to any discussion so plot to spoilers Sorry. sexy spoilers yeah. like there's there's stuff we've got to dig deep into spoiler city the spoiler city so make sure you've seen the film before you listen to this welcome to the victory project we're all here because we believe in the mission what are we doing changing, changing the, world. the world what are we doing changing, changing the, the world. world that's right Do you even know what the Victory Project actually is? Have you ever asked? Do you? Please. What's actually happening? Stop it, Alice. What if this place is dangerous? What if Stop it! No. Jack. It's okay. I'm curious to hear where she's going with this. So a little introduction. I think anyone who listens to our podcast probably knows a lot about this film anyway mm-hmm. a from us yeah. because i feel like we've discussed it quite a few times Haven't in the build up about it. no it's been a uh, it's been on our minds for a few years and i think everyone is probably quite invested anyway in one way or another but just to recap don't worry darling is a 2022 american psychological thriller film directed by olivia wilde and Olivia is, of course, an actress turned director whose debut film was Booksmart. And we discussed Booksmart on the pod. We did. We really liked it. We did really we like it. We had a great it. time. And yeah. we chatted to Peggy afterwards about... I was just going to say, it was a high school film. Yeah. yeah. That was a great time, wasn't lovely it? Lovely time. Lovely, lovely time. Um, and the film is based on a story by Carrie Van Dyke, Shane Van Dyke and Kate Silberman. And Kate Silberman was the one that rewrote the script into the final screenplay. So there was an original kind of story and then Kate came in to do some edits, which is sort of important to the discussion around this film, which is why I've sort of highlighted it. Um, And Silverman also wrote the story for Booksmart, so she's worked with Olivia Wilde before. It features an ensemble cast that includes Florence Pugh, Harry Styles, Olivia Wilde, Gemma Chan, Kiki Lane, Nick Kroll and Chris Pine. The premise, according to Google, thank you very much, is in the 1950s, Alice and Jack live in the idealised community of Victory, an experimental company town that houses the men who work on a top secret project. While the husbands toil away, the wives get to enjoy the beauty, luxury and debauchery of their seemingly perfect paradise. However, when cracks in her idyllic life begin to appear, exposing flashes of something sinister lurking below the surface, Alice can't help but question exactly what she's doing in Victory. 
So Olivia Wilde's first film was such a critical success that 18 studios were hot on the heels of it to bid on this next film, which was won by New Line Cinema. And the film was announced all the way back in 2019. So that's BC now before COVID. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I just measure everything by... Yeah, but it doesn't even feel like it was that long ago. No, but it was God. bloody yonks ago. Um, and so the, the first announcement, the public announcement, came with the announcement of Florence Pugh, Shia LaBeouf, Dakota Johnson and Chris Pine added to the cast. And Wilde was originally set to play Pugh's part and Pugh was going to play Wilde's. Thank God that swapped over. I'm so glad that they did not do that. Can you imagine? Good Lord. Um, but they traded roles when Wilde decided she wanted a younger couple at the centre of the film. In September 2020, Harry Styles joined the cast to replace LaBeouf, which is something we will discuss. In October 2020, Gemma Chan and Kiki Lane joined the cast, with Lane replacing Dakota Johnson, who dropped out due to a scheduling conflict. Great for me, personally. <laughs> uh, and then principal photography began in October 2020. And there were, of course, some on-set delays due to COVID-19, which is, funnily enough, the least of this film's problems. Uh, and filming wrapped in February 2021. So the alleged on-set conflicts for this film are vast. And we're going to go into them in some more depth in a moment. And then we'll talk about the film itself. So... Don't Worry Darling had its world premiere at the 79th Venice International Film Festival in September, which contains more drama for us to discuss. And it was released in the UK in cinemas on the 23rd of September. Um, so we thought we'd talk about the, the timeline of drama. Yeah, because I feel first. like it's really hard to discuss this film without having to contextualise it within the bubble almost of the just all the nonsense around you just, it. it has to be considered yeah. doesn't we it? did we, we talked about it, didn't we we said like do we do we address the drama do we like how do we separate it out and for me at this point and again this is something that we're going to probably reiterate throughout but i feel like now it is impossible it's part of the entire mythology yeah, of this film. completely completely it's That's like it, isn't it it's the apocalypse now of 2022 god is don't worry darling yeah. so um i will i will give a timeline Can of the you, drama please? yeah love credit, a timeline I, I mean this is my homage to you <laughs> thanks so credit much. to glamour magazine thanks because yes, i did not i i did not piece this timeline together but it is quite a lot of fun so and it reminded me of a few things that i'd forgotten happened so great fun so the recap is april 2020 deadline reports that pew shire chris pine are set to star in olivia wilde's thriller don't worry darling great to which i think we were quite excited yeah, was... lovely woo and then september 2020 it's announced that harry styles will replace labeouf in the film yeah. he is leaving due to quote unquote scheduling conflicts ah mm -hmm. oh, what a shame but harry styles brilliant yeah, for us october 2020 it begins filming mm -hmm. november so only a month after filming has started wild announces that she and her fiance of seven years jason's is it sadik how do you say his last sudeikis. name sudeikis thanks i'm learning things Fine. during this episode jason sudeikis have split up and they apparently split up towards the beginning of the year mm -hmm. so important before they started filming. Sure. We're told it was amicable. A month later, two of LaBeouf's famous girlfriends, so FKA Twigs and Carolyn Foe, file a lawsuit against him, citing relentless abuse yep. and sexual battery. Yep. So that month, a couple of weeks later, it's it, Variety reports that Shire has been dropped for the film 
due to poor behaviour, not because of scheduling conflicts. So there were lots of talk around him clashing with cast and crew mm-hmm. about Wilde needing to basically fire him because she has a zero asshole policy, yep. which also becomes an important part of this story. Mm-hmm. A month later, in January, Harry and Olivia attend a wedding together, confirming that they're a couple. Um, According to a source that spoke to people, their relationship blossomed on, don't worry, darling, obviously. Obviously. Obviously they were boning on set. Yeah. Over a year later, in April 2022, custody papers from Wilde's ex are delivered to her while she's literally on stage at CinemaCon in Vegas, which is something that we discussed. We did, yep. Truly a iconic moment um and this ignites a lot of speculation around how amicable this split is people are also trying to form connections between you know is this because her relationship with harry styles overlapped with her relationship with jason you know what is happening with the end of this marriage but this clearly isn't good Mm -hmm. and it's a real mic drop moment yeah then in july olivia posts on instagram talking about how much she fucking loves florence Pugh. Great, lovely. Who doesn't? Me too. Exactly. Great to know that they've had a good time on set. Yep. Unfortunately, a month later, in August 2022, the press is starting to ramp up for this movie and fans who are just like internet sleuths in their finest, really, um, they notice that Florence Pugh is basically absent from doing anything about this film. Mm -hmm. She hasn't posted much on Instagram about it at this point. Um, and her reps are saying she's in Budapest shooting June 2 so she's busy she hasn't had a chance to but people are really noticing that she's not saying much so this rumour starts to boil that her and Wilde are in a feud there's also a rumour around this time that Pew got paid less than Styles for the movie however everyone has commented on it saying that's not true so I think that one is bullshit I think that's a big lie that one's a bullshit yeah A couple of weeks later, Wilde talks to Variety, completely dismisses the rumours, says it's just, you know, it's tabloid media is a tool to pit women against one another and to shame them. So she's pulling the hard feminist line. Yeah. Um, And she also talks a bit about LaBeouf and says his process was not conducive to the ethos that I demand in my productions. So she's going in hard on this bad behaviour thing. Yeah. Which is fine because we all know he's a shithead. Yeah, absolutely. So. Makes sense. Totally makes sense. Yeah, fine. Then, two days later, the shit truly hitteth the fan shire pipes up someone that no one wants to hear from and says he actually quit the film due to lack of rehearsal time he also says he discussed quitting with olivia and he shares a text that implies that she was gutted that he was leaving he also sent a video to variety that wilde allegedly sent him at some point before he left so during the negotiation in which she seems to allude to the fact that he and Pew didn't get along, and she also refers to Florence Pugh as Miss Flo, which comes across rather patronisingly. Same day, the rap reports that Pew is limiting her press for the film, and it's just going to be Venice Film Festival, so everyone's like, holy shit, this means that something's going on. Yep. Then we had that glorious moment on the 5th of September in Venice. I was in Australia and trying to deal with this Honestly. whilst on a work trip Honestly. in a different time zone to you, which was very difficult. Stressful for us very, both. Just very stressful. Wild and Styles arrived at Venice in separate boats. Hilarious. Don't know why that makes me laugh, but it does. Just like, we all know you're shagging. Jesus like, Christ, come on. come on now. Just just arrive together. Um, Pew arrives late after the press event and people reports... Um, that this is because she was filming June. However, social media footage emerges that shows that she was basically arriving. She could. She arrived on time, I yeah, think. Yeah, she was there. Um, she just didn't want to be there. 
And then during their panel, which also featured Chris Pine and Gemma Chan, Wilde brushes off a question about her falling out with Pew. No, it didn't happen. She just happens to not be here because she's busy. Then the personal stylists get involved. Love we don't get it. to hear about the personal stylists very often, no. do we? So they're coming for it. So Pew stylist Rebecca Corbin Murray captions her Instagram post about Pew with Miss Flo. On the flip side, wild stylist Carla Welch uploads a photo of her on Instagram stories and uses the caption, there's always more to the story. So we've got, we've got like warring, we've got warring personal stylists here. Incredible. Hilarious. Um, and then poor Chris Pine has to get involved. Firstly, he suffers immensely during his interview next to Harry Styles, who is talking about this film being... A film. I think he just wanted the ground to open up and swallow. He, he was struggling, wasn't he? he was. It was not it having was a good hard. time. Uh, he was also dragged into a discussion around whether Harry spat on him as they took their seats for the screening. Spitgate. <laughs> Spitgate. Um, I'm also going to chip in here and say I went to a museum exhibit like two days later. Uh, it's like the American. I can't remember what it's called. The Australian something for moving image. Sorry, can't remember what it's called. Centre for Moving Image. And there is there was, a, in the exhibition, a gallery piece around this happening two days before. And they had a reel of, like, Incredible. Harry seemingly spitting on Chris, which I just thought was wonderful. September 21st, Olivia ends rumours of a feud with Florence, saying that she's a superhero. She's got nothing against her for any reason. However, in the, in the past fortnight, we've heard rumours of a screaming match between them. But we've also had a letter signed by 40 crew and production members of the film testifying that there was absolutely no drama on set, which is a reminder that shitting on this film probably hurts more than just the leading cast yeah, and director. So that's yeah. quite sad. So that yeah. is, I think that's the timeline. Is there anything missing? No, I mean, I mean that's probably the thing enough. is, there, it's funny because going through that timeline, so <laughs> much stuff has happened. And I think there are so many little things that, maybe aren't even on there not because they're not important but just because so much has happened so much. it's actually really hard to do like an overview of it yeah um but i think those are the key points those are the key points thanks glamour it's many of them thanks Lovely. Glamour. yes very um very concise very well done well researched <laughs> so expectations around this film what were your expectations and i guess there's like a two phase of this there's like mm, there the is. early expectations yeah. and then the later expectations so my initial expectations were high highly anticipated film really liked booksmart um i generally quite like olivia wilde yes and um, when it was initially announced uh, obviously predates the shire accusations so at that point i was excited because i i'm you know, formerly a fan of Shia LaBeouf mm -hmm. and love Florence Pugh. Cast sounded great. Beautiful cast. Um, Lovely. And then and after Shia exited, the idea of Harry Styles getting on board, who wouldn't love that? We are famed Harry Styles that. fans. So that was very exciting. The period setting sounded interesting to me. Um, we did see a few set photos as well during filming. So I was I was really looking forward to it. Um, I will say, however, that, that I rapidly became quite concerned after just the onslaught of information that you have just laid out mm. there so eloquently um i became concerned by how potentially bad it might be <laughs> all of the onset drama the tension in the build-up to the film's release the whole florence and olivia thing um the general critical reception being slightly less than positive the <laughs> That's varying, a very diplomatic yeah the varying it. profiles on olivia wilde where i just felt like she was doubling down on many many things about which i just 
needed to not hear her talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the awkwardness of the Harry and Chris Pine interviews. So really, I went from being like, this is going to potentially be one of my favourite films of the year to I am really going to have to push myself to endure this, which is, is really like two ends of the spectrum. Yeah, it's been a roller coaster, hasn't well, it? Well, I think it's like you said as well, like right off the bat, it was something that like at the start of the year, we were really looking forward to. I think we to. talked about it on the podcast yeah, as did. one of the films that we couldn't wait for. When we did our like what we're looking forward yeah. to, I think we definitely, I think you had it and I had it as well. Like we were really looking forward to it. Yeah. And we were such big fans of Booksmart. And yeah. I think, yeah, felt very warmly towards Olivia Wilde. And generally speaking, the internet was quite warm towards yeah. Olivia Wilde. So that's another thing is the, the rapidly changing um, mood of the internet with mm-hmm. these things. No, I'm very, very similar the, obviously, the Shire fallout was extremely shit, but it was great that he exited the film pretty oh, yeah. swiftly. Um, and you know, the idea of kicking him to the curb because his, you know, his behaviour is not conducive to the ethos of the set. Great. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't say you can't. No, great. That's that, what you want to hear. Get no. rid of him. Get someone else in. I was excited about Harry obviously, selfishly, little bit nervous about him being in a starring role because that's a very big step up for well, someone who's done just Dunkirk in a very small role. And he doesn't really say much in Dunkirk. No. Everyone sort of seems to forget this somewhat, is that the lines that he has in Dunkirk are, like, really throwaway. And, and everyone's and like, not... he's brilliant in it. And he's like, he is, but that's because he doesn't have to do that doesn't much. Have to do that much. So this is a very big step yeah. up. So he's either really blown people away behind the scenes mm-hmm. or... They're giving him, like, a very big chance yeah. for not much reason other than, obviously, he's a superstar. Yeah. Um, as you say, it's been progressively getting more messy. Had concerns around the Olivia and Harry relationship, not because of their relationship. Great for them. Mm. Go for it. Mm. Do whatever you want. Couldn't care less. More the fact that, oh, okay, this entire film is going to be swamped in discussion around them yeah. and it's likely going to end up messy yeah, and that was before the, the Florence well, stuff this is the thing isn't it it became apparent that really early on as soon as news of them having a relationship became public that actually it's going to be impossible the internet was going to tank film. this film no matter yeah, what of course. And that's... everyone was going to want to talk about it yeah that was aside from the quality of the film and all this other stuff that's happened that I just felt it it had a good shot for like four months and then when that happened it was like yeah this is going to completely overshadow anything so my my expectations have sunk and sunk and then were kind of rock bottom due to the critical reaction as well thought it'd be a mess excruciating poor performances really the tone has been this is like one of the worst films we've seen in ages so i was struggling and also it is very hard to disengage from the gossip so trying to put that aside basically for the past three months i've just really wanted this all to be over well this is exactly how my feeling has been is that i just need to get it over and done with which when it's something that you've been looking forward to and indeed that it's something that's starring people that you actually like quite like is is a very funny mindset mm-hmm. to have but like i cannot wait for september just to be done so we can move just on it over and not talk about this yeah. on twitter anymore yeah totally absolutely so we'll go into some depth around particular aspects of this film but what were your initial reactions to having seen it because we saw it a couple of nights ago what were your initial feelings in summary i am just going to read what i wrote because i feel like does it it summarize it it essentially summarizes my my feelings so the first thing i've written is lol (laughs) 
I've done, do you know what? I've had a lot of Instagram yep. responses from people just going, lol, to uh, the poster. The next thing I wrote was, what a mess. Um, I'm generally speaking quite baffled by the entire thing. It feels quite riddled with plot holes and inaccuracies and unresolved moments, which which I'm sure we'll come on to discuss. I was also quite surprised by how dull it felt in parts. Like, I, there were parts of it where it was very nice to look at and aesthetically, it's, mm. like, from a from a visual perspective, like, it looks brilliant. I really like period setting, particularly that period yeah, setting yeah. in America. So, like, for me, it was, like, a real visual feast mm. in that regard. But it was quite boring. Long. Long. The pacing was The pacing was off. Um, I obviously cannot downplay the importance of the sex scenes though and i will just say that it felt like a real cultural shift and i honestly thought you were going to implode and i really wish that i could have filmed your reaction because that to me was absolutely everything i wanted out that was of this the, film. that was worth the price of the ticket genuinely worth the price of admission alone was watching you absolutely try and get your head around some of what we were having to watch on screen in a way that just felt like that really got really got me because I, I was like trying oh, so it's worth it and the thing it? that was making it even worse is that we were essentially in a cinema full of teenagers yeah and i was the one reacting yeah the most strongly <laughs> yeah everyone else was just in stony silence and i was like i've really got to keep my cool here because i'm older than everyone by about 15 years it was great though it was Your excruciating face, so somehow you <laughs> really were aghast um however so basically somehow it was not as bad as i expected but then also quite worse so yeah. that's my general reaction <laughs> yeah. to it. Yeah. Maybe not as bad, but also maybe worse than yeah. I thought. Yeah. I did a blow by blow my reactions per- whilst Perfect. Watching. Please, let's go. So stage one, this really isn't too bad. Yep. That's a, yep. Florence is a joy, obviously. O- honestly could watch her for hours. Lovely. She's amazing. Why is everyone ragging on Harry Styles' accent? Can we do, can we do this moment now? Yeah. Because... Obviously, in the when the trailer was released, mm-hmm. and I've experienced this on a personal level, everyone seemed to really be like, "What is his accent about?" Like, but the thing is, that was something that I was really taken by in the film because I think I did lean over mm. to you and I was like, "He just sounds That's like just Harry Styles." That's just his voice. Guys. That's what he sounds like in the fifties setup with him as Jack. That is literally his voice. If you watch- he has a very funny northern accent if you watch any interviews with him like that's just his slightly strange transatlantic he's been famous since he was 17 yeah hasn't lived anywhere permanently. he's not putting on any accent no, that's there. his that's voice just... so i was paf- baffled at that yeah, yeah, point yeah because i was like what is going on here yeah um i thought he's actually not performing that badly at the beginning. Right. you know i was like good good for him he's, he's you know he's new to it but he's doing all right um everyone needs to give this film a bit of a break if it you know i think our friend mike had said that this would be a very well received netflix release yeah and i totally agreed with that and i was like i can find some enjoyment in this even if the characters and the script feel a little bit clunky probably Mm. the witness but i was like no i'm actually you know this isn't too bad stage 1.5 yep the sex scenes. I was like, truly got my five pounds worth here watching Harry stick his head up Florence's skirt. I think that I would pay to see the first half an hour alone. Yeah. Again. And then I'd leave. Yeah. You know? I can't wait for those those bits to be cut and put on YouTube. I'll be watching those. Counting down the days. <laughs> when I'm sad. Um, then stage two was, mm, yeah, everyone is 
struggling to prop up this bad script, aren't mm. they? Harry's acting is getting progressively more wooden as the film requires him to do more. Yeah. Um, he'd do great in amateur theatre. Wouldn't he? Lovely. Not very amdram. Lovely. Mm. He'd be great at the Madam Market. Wouldn't he? Yes, great. Uh, thank God for Florence, obviously. Um, and wow, this story lacks any real tension, but I will ride it out until the end yep. and give it a middling review. Yep. Stage three... The twist. Oh, the twist. What the fuck is this? Why have they let Harry put on that accent? There's like probably about 60 seconds of accent work, if that. Maybe even 20 seconds of him talking. And it is so bad. It's so bad. Why did they let him do that? I'm so confounded by you'd it. Let, you'd let him do one take and you'd go, fuck, you know what? This, That's the not accent, working, mate. The accent doesn't add anything to the story. No. It's not important. No. Just drop the accent. Just drop it. Oh my God, it was so bad. It was awful. I took my glasses off so I couldn't see you him couldn't anymore. couldn't see it anymore. I physically took my glasses off so the screen was blurry because they somehow made him very ugly. Can I say the thing that I leaned over yes, to Yes, because it's great. So he appears on screen... Um, wearing sort of slightly wiry framed glasses, which I always think is like the, the, the cinematic way of like showing that this person is maybe a bit strange is by incel. giving them like shit glasses. Incel costume. Ooh, incel glasses. Shit wiry glasses. Um, and they gave him like greasy hair, which as Ruby pointed out to me during a discussion I had with her about this, she said, Harry had a long hair hot phase. So oh, what they've he done... He can really do long hair. What they've done is they've managed to make Harry Styles with long hair be awful it was grotesque but the thing and and his clothing and everything but the thing i leaned across to you and said is that with um incel harry um just look like louis tomlinson <laughs> it's so true it's right isn't it's it? so true i'm really annoyed it's very hard to find pictures on the internet yeah. it's almost like i imagined it but i know it happened mm. so hopefully some high-res screen grabs will happen at some point Oh my God, he looks like Louis Tomlinson. He did look like Louis Tomlinson. So, Larry Styles, alive and well. Yep, Larry Styleson out there. Um, and then stage four was the finale where I just went... I'd lost the, that, I'd lost the word that's to live the by end? that point. That's the end. So in summary for me, was it as bad as I was led to believe? Possibly not for particular reasons, but worse in other ways. The first half earns itself a fair amount of credit... The second half, it absolutely goes to pot. Yeah, I was fairly entertained and I was cutting it some slack until mm. the plot twist was revealed. Then I just wanted to leave, really. Um, and mostly I hope by doing this podcast that I don't have to engage in any actual conversation about this film with anyone in no, real life. please don't ask me. Because I've got better things to do. <laughs> this is the one and only time. Yeah. No further comment. Right, so let's go. <laughs> <laughs> with so, that in mind. <laughs> with that in mind, here we go. In slightly more depth, in, as you said, in terms of style, mm -hmm. it looks very attractive. Oh, yeah, it's great. Beautiful settings, stunning outfits, yep. very handsome people. It's bright, it's colourful, 50s Americana sort of... It, so, plus points for it looking lovely. Yeah. The cinematography is quite nice. Yeah, I mean, it, so it's all... it's A lot of it's filmed in Palm Springs... Um, and it looks lovely. There Beautiful. are lots of oh, lovely houses. It really captures of how stark the desert is, but how you've got this just sort of like nice slice of Americana in the middle of it's it. It's very well choreographed, yeah. isn't it? It's got a sort of dance. I mean, there are the some staging dance it. elements, but it is very, feels like a dance piece in place. Yeah, absolutely. There's moments like with the, you know, the cars all pulling out of the driveways mm. at the same time. Like all, a lot of all the sort of heavily choreographed set pieces like that. Are really well executed. It Lots looks like a, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
But it's very confusing to try and work out what this film is trying to be. Mm-hmm. And the thing with genre, and we've talked about this a lot with other films, is I think we like to play with genre and we like to watch films that play with or subvert genre. Mm-hmm. Can really, especially if you're trying to create a film that generates unease for an audience, yep. playing with genre is a really great way to do that. But because this film absolutely does not know what tone it's trying to portray or what genre it's trying to play with, it's just very... I I think that's one of the reasons why the lack of tension is there. Because you just kind of... I think your brain's trying to work out what the fuck this is supposed to be. this is the thing for me. I'm I'm slightly flummoxed when it comes to, like, even thinking about how to describe the genre of this. I mean, it's, like, a bit sci-fi, in a way. It's a Mm -hmm. bit dystopian. Yeah. Um, The thing I've seen banded about quite a lot is that it's like a white woman's get out. Oh my... In a, way, in a way that, like, I think is is a complete dig about how ridiculous it is. Yeah. I don't think that's a compliment in no. the slightest. I, I'd seen lots of comparisons to the work of Jordan Peele in advance of this, and I actually think that's giving the film too much credit to even be putting it on a level with anything that Jordan Peele has done. Yeah. Um, which is why it's funny to me that we're discussing this in the immediate aftermath of having done an episode about Nope. Oh, yes, that's good. true. Um, the obvious comparison is, I think inevitably like the Stepford Wives yeah it is and that's what you I think what you go into expecting 100% and what I the did. is yep. you know there's something not right in this yep. idyllic neighbourhood it's a kind of psychological thriller isn't it yeah but you've also got this kind of domestic melodrama it sort of grapples with a, a sort of abusive and controlling relationship bit erotic thriller bit yep. sci-fi as you say um, yeah I'd written Stepford Wives get out yep <laughs> And then sort of Black Mirror, Twilight Zone-esque yep. as yep. well. Yep. But for me, I was trying... Going back to that use of genre, like, you want to play with the audience expectations. So often you go into a film expecting a certain set of genre tropes, which are then at some point turned on their head. Mm-hmm. Whereas this just felt like a very weird mishmash of lots of genre tropes. It felt like a scattergun approach. Yeah, it really did, didn't it? Yeah. So I had no idea, I couldn't pinpoint what I was watching, so I couldn't feel uneasy, because I, I just, well, we'll come it was on, messy. Well, we'll come on to this, I'm sure, when we interrogate the storytelling a little bit more, but you've already mentioned the fact that there's like a real lack of tension. There's like simultaneously like tension within it, but like not really. Yeah, I think we're being told it's tense. I, I feel like you're given the impression or you're told you you things are happening where you're sort of meant to be like oh something's happening isn't it like yeah. there is a pervading sense of like oh something's going on the music's definitely telling yeah. you this is a tense moment but you they can't there's no i just don't doesn't think you translate. buy into it you don't translate no i translate. felt mostly nothing i felt nothing and i also like i'm the characters themselves are great in the sense that like there are good performances again which will you know mm. are, they're sort of real standouts for me but at the same time i didn't care no. There's no emotional buy-in, I don't think. No, for me, there anyway, isn't, there is wasn't. there? It kind of... Um... Like, I liked them, but I also, like, simultaneously just didn't didn't connect. Yeah, I think... And that's where the genre stuff, for me, also is slightly lacking, because mm-hmm. I feel like when genre films work, if it, or, or when you've got genre expectations, yeah. um, you, you need an attachment mm. to someone within the film. Yeah. Yeah, to get those expectations. And I was just like, I don't really understand. Like, what genre is this? I don't care about these people. Mm -hmm. They're giving me nothing. Mm -hmm. There's, it's such a scattergun Mm. approach when it comes to genre conventions because I have no idea what where it is and what it's doing. So I just felt a bit like you can't place your expectations. Therefore, you can't feel uneasy. No, exactly. That's exactly it. Because it's like 
I don't know. And it, it's, it happens so suddenly from yeah. the outset. I don't think there's a lot of setup by way Mm-mm. of you're suddenly these kind of psychological breaks and and this kind of goes into the themes and storytelling really which is my next point is kind of it it, happened well the pacing is all over the place it's awful in terms of sort of themes Mm -hmm. i mean this is a film that regards itself as very feminist as olivia wilde has spoken about uh, like blaringly this is the thing that really baffles me as well is because yeah okay you've got it's feminist in the sense that it is addressing like power and control and, and in, gender in, roles and in gender roles and imbalanced power dynamics mm-hmm. and essentially men who are threatened by women's success and essentially long for their dependency so the 1950s setting works well with that because mm-hmm. you've got you know a society where it was traditionally women were mm-hmm. at home men were at work so it's it's feminist in the sense that it's attempting to interrogate mm. the the un the uneven balance there mm. um but i i'm so intrigued by the fact that she has been out there plowing and plowing and plowing that this is a feminist story this is a feminist story and this is a feminist story because i just don't think it is no it feels really one note really yeah it really does um and yeah and it kind of attempts to and this this is where sort of spoilers um to the sort of second part of the film it's it's kind of drawing parallels between yeah the 50s and the sort of very regressive gender politics of the 50s um and a contemporary setting where we've got this kind of incel anti-woke backlash well, the thing that i'd mentioned is the matrix so mm-hmm. like the matrix but for gender yeah. and i think she's been citing that in interviews as, she- as well <laughs> okay, as like oh the films that this was influenced by she's mentioned like inception i know i have seen her reference that um i think she'd mentioned wow, i hadn't thought about matrix. that film at all with relation to no. this film so like i get that so like the idea of it being like the matrix but for gender but not really no it doesn't I mean, for all those, the different elements that don't come together, I guess, of the sum of why it doesn't really work. Um, the, the female pleasure aspect as well taps into what you were saying, because I find it really interesting that the female pleasure um, aspect of this film has been touted as a key component of it. And as much as I am grateful to watch Harry Styles stick his hand in someone's underwear, the power dynamic there is still no. entirely his. Like, it, it's quite funny to see... Like, don't assume that someone receiving oral sex equates with them being the ones that, like, quote-unquote, wear the trousers. I was like, I didn't see the... It's supposed to be very empowering for women sexually as well. And I was like, this isn't a film of... There's no, like, empowerment there. No, absolutely not. And I think that this is a good time to actually talk about the spoilers specifically. Mm -hmm. Because the twist itself is that the 1950s setting is part of, like, a virtual reality game mm. right and that harry styles's character jack is actually someone that's sort of been essentially radicalized online by like a jordan peterson-esque conspiracy character, cult right? yeah which is absolutely fine and if you're going to interrogate the mechanics of like why men of a particular age socioeconomic background race white men mm-hmm. um get radicalized by things like mm-hmm. that and why their feelings towards women push them into this mm-hmm. really horrible little mm-hmm. den but then to tie that into female pleasure seems fucking ironic because well, to me, quite. 
I do not regard any incel type man, right, as being anyone that is in any way prioritising female pleasure. No. Absolutely not. Never. So yeah, okay, they could be really longing for a time like the 1950s when women were subservient to them yeah. and had cocktails ready for them as soon as they got home yeah. from work and made their dinner and were ready to have sex with them at any point. But no offence or anything. I, I think it's really hard-pressed to say, oh, yeah, no, but then they're also just really big fans of just solely pleasuring women. I was going to say, don't, yeah. I in don't his, buy it. I don't in, buy it. I'm sorry. In his idyllic, like, nope. virtual reality setup, he's like, I also just really want to be good at oral sex, giving oral I don't sex. Buy it. Like, I don't know. I don't buy it either. Don't it's buy really, it. it's, it's just, it's very strange, isn't it? And in terms of the storytelling, we were talking about the kind of conspiracy cult aspect, which is obviously, like, sort of embodied by Chris Pine as Frank, who's mm-hmm. this charismatic leader mm-hmm. of the Victory uh, Project, comes sort of incel leader, who's supposedly modelled on jo- Jordan Peterson. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't interrogate that at all, does no, it? No, it doesn't. We have this set up, and then he almost completely disappears. Well, and his motivation, his reason for set- setting up... I, un- I understand Jack's motivation for wanting yeah, to 100%. sign up, but what is Frank's motivation for having created this... <laughs> What are his motivations? Where does he play in this in the real world? Like This is absolutely what I think that it really, really lacks is any interrogation about like why something like the Victory Project would be established. Who are the type of men that it's take getting in- involved? Why, how are they radicalized? Why are they, yeah. How are they radicalized? Why was Frank himself radicalized? Like one of the things I've got in my notes is that I wanted to see incel Frank because Chris Pine is extremely hot. Mm-hmm. And I cannot get any like you can't get me to buy into the fact that Frank, as he's presented, mm-hmm. is someone that would be radicalized like that. Mm-hmm. I need to see that. I want to yeah, know what yeah. his motivations are behind creating all of this. Like, how is he funding all of this? Like, mm-hmm. what happened to him in the outside world? Is this all Patreon? Like, I don't. Yeah. I need to. I personally wanted more of like, who is Frank? Why is he doing this? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, yeah, okay, you can walk around in interviews and go like, oh yeah, it's Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson. That's fine if you know who Jordan Peterson is. Yeah, and it's it's very superficial. It, and it reminds me of when we were talking about Men, the Alex Garland film, which I, I liked more than you did, I think. Mm-hmm. But the flaw of that is that it felt like another film where we were discussing men are bad or yeah. men are bad yeah. for this reason. So this feels this like feels another incel are bad. Well, this is the thing is that I don't think it... Like, it didn't feel particularly original. It just doesn't offer up anything new. And that's what I think that it really... It could have done better, is actually by interrogating the character, like, Frank. Like, he essentially becomes the Pied Piper for these just men who are frustrated Mm. for whatever reason. Because when we do get that glimpse of Jack in the real world, Mm. you are, as corny as it is, you are given a slight sense of, like... I mean, mechanics there appears to be that, like... Alice is a doctor, mm-hmm. she's a surgeon, she's working late all the time, she's tired, she's mm-hmm. not around to spend any time with him. And, and he's, he's like sort of disgruntled by yeah. the fact that she's actually got a really good job and she's not there Busy, for him and he's life. just sort of down on his luck. But you get some setup there, mm-hmm. so you kind of go like, oh, that's, that's sort of some motivation, I guess. Yeah. But I would love to have seen why or yeah. how Frank became the ringleader of all of this. Yeah. That's context that I was desperate for. Yeah, that was more interesting, yeah. wasn't it, as well? Um, and the pacing of this, which we've alluded to, is one of the problems as well. I, did, I didn't feel suitably established in victory before no. things started to no. feel weird. So scenes that were supposed to be unnerving felt like they were just 
placed in quite clunky places like and it opted for sort of clever visuals over making any narrative sense so i felt quite passive in terms of what i was watching and i didn't feel that sense of unraveling because it felt like it unraveled from the beginning well this is the thing is that i found the repetition in various imagery actually quite stunted and without purpose especially Mm. because it starts happening right off the bat it lacks any impact and it just sort of felt annoying Mm -hmm. so you've got these repeated scenes of like the the dancers, the song mm-hmm. that she's singing and stuff. And because it's embedded really early on without any real context. You're like, what in the a way fuck is that? Well, it just felt like it's meant to make me feel unnerved, but I have like I have no... It doesn't feel unnerving. No, it doesn't it, feel unnerving. It just feels disjointed. Yeah, it's it's the disjointing aspect of it. It just feels clunky, all right? And the bit... the bit. I mean, I, I had noticed that I was not feeling what I was supposed to be feeling for most of the film, but it really did hammer home that I lacked any thrill or tension whilst viewing this when we got that hilarious like mad max car scene at the oh end my God. which was a extremely weird with like cars exploding and b just very dull and i was like so this is dull. supposed to be a moment of high tension yeah. isn't it yeah and i just don't care well, the thing as well is that at that point i'd begun checking my watch so repeatedly that i knew there was only 10 minutes left mm-hmm. and i was starting to feel a little bit like if this is it and there's going to be no real payoff with any of this there's going to be no resolution Mm -hmm. beyond her maybe escaping this it felt pointless yeah like it just felt like oh you're just shoving in this sort of like action scene that's meant to get high tension well it's meant to be high tension it's meant to be increasing the pacing to what i assumed was going to be this like crescendo Crescendo. with her waking up but it's like you don't even see that it's just fades to black i mean and i like a fade to black ending that's fine this was not the time for a fade to black ending you can only fade to black when you've done the setup you know like if you've if you put in the work ahead of it and then you that you do a mic drop black uh, fade to black ending it's probably the most baffling fade to black i've ever seen honestly um of of many and also pacing wise it is very long it's, so, it's two hours long, so long and there are those boring it moments. It feels like two hours as well. It could work. I do think that the idea and the story and the plot twist would work very well as a one hour episode of like Black Mirror. Well, the thing for me is it just feels like a film of two halves in that the last 30 minutes feels so out of place and rushed and like it was just tapped on. Yeah. The studio maybe gave them notes or there were some screenings. <laughs> Um, and they were like, you know, oh, can you just fix this to give a bit more, I don't know, clarity or, mm. or give more of a, I don't know, send off ending. But it just didn't, I don't know, I just felt like the narrative just left me generally with more questions than it answered. Yeah. Like, I've just got an entire list of things here that I could easily rattle off. Like, what's the backstory and origins of Victory as a virtual reality game? Why would Jack enter him and Alice into it? Why did Gemma Chan suddenly just betray her husband. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, what was that about? And then she just wasn't there anymore. Yeah. Does Bunny's husband know what happened? Or was the she with the one that put them both in there? Mm. Um, where are the fucking families to these men and women? <laughs> like, no offence or anything, but if I disappeared indefinitely, my mum would be on the fucking blower to every yeah. single person I know going like, oh, I've seen April recently. I've not, not seen... She's not been at work. She's just gone AWOL. And there's also really grotty things there that you could get into with regards to any of the sexual encounters in this film in the context of that, which I think... Mm bizarre it's yeah once you know the, you can't present this once stuff, you know the woolly context you're like oh in hindsight some of this is a bit but it's, it's that's fine if you're going to offer some sort of resolution or explanation but you are giving nothing no it just cuts off which is very odd yeah performances wise mm-hmm. i mean god bless them i think everyone tried here 
they tried, but God, to me, did everyone feel like they were in different films. Oh, yeah. And the script, the script is bad. It's awful. The script is very bad, meaning that the characters were mostly very two-dimensional and unsuccessful. So it is a bad script it's for bad. everyone involved. Yeah. Florence as Alice mm-hmm. gave everything she possibly could. The thing is, I always think that even in bad films, and she has done some films that are less than good, I yes. think, even in bad films, Florence is always the best thing about them. Yeah, and you can that's how you can tell that she's a phenomenal actress. Yeah. because, And I think it's because of the way she performs physically a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah, of course. So you almost forget the script because of her physical performance. Yeah. So, and Alice was a fairly likeable character. Yeah. So that's fine. Harry as Jack, poor boy. I I mean, I obviously I will defend him to some extent. I'm predisposed to defend him, but I do feel like they rushed to place him. They clearly rushed to place him in this for the star factor. Yeah, of course. It wasn't because he showed some sort of uh, acting maturity that they no. were like, "Wow, this how has he done this?" They just rushed and they put him in a starring role where he is nowhere near... He's ill-prepared. ...ready for that. And it wasn't even that he's bad. It was just that it was very empty because he doesn't have any depth in his performance because he's so inexperienced. So it felt like someone doing a school play. Yeah. And the the thing with him taking over from Shire is that... I can understand the logic behind putting Shire in a role like that because when the twist happens, mm-hmm. right, I could completely understand if, if it had been Shire yeah. or anyone else, really, to be honest, any other actor of that type, mm-hmm. you would kind of go like, oh, actually, yeah, I buy that person yeah. as someone that would spend a lot of time online and would be radicalised and that would want this yes. type of existence. But He's with Harry as an actor... Before, and, and you're, yeah. yeah, like, I, I, there, is, there are... Bill Skarsgård, for example, yeah. is another name that kept coming up when I was reading about this as someone that, like... Would would fit really well in like nineteen fifties gear, looking handsome, handsome weirdo. Yeah, but he's fucking weird, and there's yeah. something underlying. Even mm. Alexander Skarsgård, who total weirdo, absolutely, Love it. but but can can flip yeah. like that, and that's the thing charming, with charming, gorgeous weirdo. Harry is charming and handsome and looks great, but the thing is, he doesn't have the depth yet as an actor. God no. In the flip, he just looks like someone they've stuck in a bad wig and gone like, oh, can you just be a bit of a sad boy? Yeah. Looks a bit weird. But he doesn't know he doesn't weird. Know, it doesn't work do it. for him. He, he is like, it's Harry he's Prince Charming, isn't he? The entire time... He should have been in The Little Mermaid because he yeah. is Prince Charming. The thing with him as Jack is that the entire time I'm just sitting there watching and going like, that's Harry Styles, that's Harry Styles, that's yeah. Harry Styles, and it's pulling Trying me out his best, yeah. but it's not working. Um, what was that tap dance about, by the way? I have never felt so oh, uncomfortable. So, oh, God. I'm Why so did sad. it go on for so long? It went that's, on for so long. That's something that has come up quite years. a lot in any discussion that I've had with anyone else about this film. It was like, what the fuck what was that was dance that tap about? dance about? It's like a weird power is Jack, thing. Is Jack like a secret tap dancer as well? Like, what? what yeah, was it... I don't know. I was like, is there some sort of supernatural force compelling him to dance, or is he actually just a hobbyist tap dancer? The thing that was making me think about is that even when we've seen Harry, he's not done a sustained dance like that for for any at any point during <laughs> no, the set. No, he's not. A, you know, no, not at all. It's very strange. Yeah. Um. So, Chris Pine as Frank. Yeah. Again, I think a bad script delivered as well as possible. I 
I mean, on the surface, he's obviously very charismatic, but I, again, felt completely unpersuaded just because we did not learn much about him. No. We were just told over and over again by everyone else that he's wonderful and very charismatic, but I didn't actually see much of that. You know why you're why told that? Why they're drawn that? to him. You know why you're told that, though? It's because Chris Pine is just hot. Yeah. Right? So that's the that's yeah, the thing. That's the draw. That's the draw. But in terms of his delivery the script there's nothing charismatic there no. really it's all very superficial isn't it yeah. and then yeah he sort of just disappears we don't hear anything no. from him again um olivia wilde as bunny i think it's wildly un- wildly wildly unfortunate that she plays a character that is fairly unlikable because that is not going to help her that just really doesn't help her present situation in real life no and i will say actually i thought she was quite good in this because i think she manages to find a balance between being quite funny but then also slightly menacing yeah the thing that i did think is once you know what the twist is the slightly anachronistic uh, aspect of bunny as a particular character i.e like just some of her behaviour and the mm-hmm. way that she spoke made sense because you kind of go, like, yeah. oh, this is a contemporary, this mm-hmm. is a person from like every mm. like now. Yeah. You know, so that made so sense. She probably is one of the better performers. Yeah, I thought she, I thought she was good. Yeah. I was surprised actually by how good she was because I had anticipated that she would just be bad. Yeah, and then they did drop quite a heavy bit of context right at the end, is in like the last five seconds of her being on screen. <laughs> right. Which again was interesting but we weren't going to dig any deeper into no, it so it was surface. kind of just like Absolute oh this is why level. i've done this and then just that so you know. okay but yeah. that was big wasn't it i that for me um, as well the setup there so the setup is that she then reveals that she has known all along that this is yeah. like a virtual reality thing and that she was the one that placed herself mm. within the victory game or and then they chatted is. about that for about 20 seconds and then but but it's just it's like thrown out there mm. As like, like quite a, a big piece. Oh my god, this is supposed to be like a dramatic reveal, but there was I was just like, all right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she knew then. Oh, yep. she knew. Yep, good. And then I guess finally, Kiki Lane as Margaret, who is good for the five seconds that she's in it. Fascinated by how much they took out of her. Yeah. Although what I also find interesting is yeah, there's been lots of talk about the fact that she her character was cut quite a lot from mm-hmm. the film, so we were sort of we had speculated beforehand like i wonder what else was in the story around her character but then ruby had read the two scripts oh interesting and she said that there wasn't actually that much more with margaret in it oh okay so then i was like well what i so i genuinely maybe that's just a bit of like maybe that's just a bit of like passive aggressive pylon then who knows but it could be which adds to my point and we are going to talk about this that there is just so much going on with this film. Mm. I find it very, very difficult to tease what is true and what isn't. They do underuse um, her in a way that frustrated me. It, it, yeah, she's definitely underused. I mean, have you got anyone else on the performance? There I do not. Of... Do you have any Yeah, others? I mean, I am baffled by Gemma Chan conceptually. Oh, yes. She yeah. is fucking gorgeous and she looks mm. wonderful anytime she's on screen. Yeah, she's beautiful. But as an actress, I don't understand her. No, but... I haven't seen her in anything else because I haven't seen Crazy Rich Asians, mm. so... Um, this is pretty much my is it my first experience with Gemma Chan? maybe yeah Um, I just don't get it yeah Um, the other thing that there are two performances in this film as well which for me specifically I found extremely jarring and really pulled me out which is the inclusion of Nick Kroll Mm -hmm. and also Kate Ballant yeah who plays Peg who's the lady that's pregnant all the time Mm -hmm. It was wonderful to see them because I'm both I'm fans of both of their respective works. Mm-hmm. I'm a fucking huge Nick Kroll fan. But for me, they are both 
too tied to comedy and for Kroll especially just hearing his voice because he's done so much mm. voice work, work mm. in things like Big Mouth, mm. right? It just pulls me out. Because yeah. I hear him speak and I'm immediately thinking of his characters in... And you probably Big... need to have that awareness, don't you, as yeah. the creator of I would song. be really interested to see how anyone else found him. As, I mean, his role isn't particularly big, but he is in it. Mm. Um, but I would be really interested to see what anyone else thought about him mm. specifically. Because for me, I was just like, I just want him to be naturally funny and just do his Nick Kroll thing. And same for Kate Ballant, is that mm. she's brilliant but i'm just thinking about like every sketch she's ever done with john early or mm-hmm. every sketch she's done in like i think we should leave like she's so great that's just adding to the confusion of watching this film i felt they were operating on a completely different level to mm-hmm. everyone else and it goes back to that again how everyone's performances for me just felt particularly all over the place mm-hmm. is there anything else you want to talk about i mean i guess we can shout out the music and the sound design so this is scored by john powell this was another element i thought felt quite jordan peele yes it feels like they're sort of scoring a horror, I guess, again, to generate tension. You've got that kind of buzzing, the sort of singing. But again, that came across as unsuccessful. That was like the indicator that, for me, that a, te- a scene was supposed to be tense. Well, I didn't particularly... But... I didn't think it worked particularly well. Like, I, there are some really great needle drops in here with lots of period-appropriate mm. soul and jazz. In particular, so you've got Ray Charles, Dizzy Gillespie, Brenton Wood... Ella Fitzgerald, um, all things are, are, you know, great, great classic songs, which are always a pleasure to hear on screen. Um, but then you also have this score, which feels really contemporary in a very Jordan Peele-esque way. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that I felt the deployment of it was was purposeful, Which and, and obviously that is genuinely the point, but it felt purposeful in the sense that it was trying to make me feel unsettled. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really effective. No, it wasn't. Um, and it should have been. It really, it should have been. And it just, again, it just added up to that sense of like, yeah, for me, I felt like the music was good. The cinematography was good. The sort of design, set design, but then everything else, the pacing and the storytelling, the script writing, uh, some of the performances just added up to something that was very ineffective. Yeah, yeah, Um, definitely. and, And like we said, the first half showed some seemed all right and then it really fell apart just tanks absolutely tanks. it really does um do you feel like as we said at the beginning all of that onset offset speculated drama it has become so interwoven with this film that it ha- had a huge effect on it as well so objectively i think this film isn't great at all no it's not but also it really suffers from that well, on set. the thing for me is that having Stuff. now seen it, and I, I said, I remember saying to you, this to you as we left, is that I'm genuinely amused that this is what caused all of the furore and that Olivia Wilde doubled down so hard for this particular film. Mm. And I sort of understand as well, having now seen it, that why, like Florence Pugh and Chris Pine in particular, were so reluctant to engage in any press to support it. So regardless of any like conflict there, it's mm. just not a good film. And actually why would you want to go out and promote it if you're slightly embarrassed by it? Yeah, I feel like post-Venice and as those early reactions to the film were coming out and people saying it wasn't very good, I will probably... I mean, we might in two years get a tell-all and find out exactly what happened. But what happened on set in particular, I don't. we're never going to fully know. No. It could all be absolute... I mean, I don't think it's bullshit that they were doinking on set. I'm sure that was happening. Good for them, to be honest. I don't really care. But there's so many rumours around what happened on the set that I, either we'll never know 
we probably won't ever know what's true and what's not. It could all be bullshit. Who knows? It could all be true. We might find out it's all true. However, it could quite possibly be the case that a lot of it has been blown out of proportion. There might have been some tensions on set or whatever. Flo and um, Olivia didn't click. Whatever. I'm sure it happens all the time in any well, profession. Does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's also quite. It's quite possible that the reactions we felt from and that horrible air that I could feel coming through tension coming through the screen at mm. me from Venice mm. could also be a product of the cast being like, "This isn't a very good film. I don't really want to be a part of it." And also everyone being really fed up because even if some of it isn't true, I bet a lot of the speculation makes you probably creates tension between you even if there wasn't any. Because it overshadows everything. All of the behind the scenes drama is sort of essentially overshadowing the film. I don't think it will necessarily hurt the film because I do feel like it will benefit from the chatter Mostly because it's not very good, and but people will still go and see it. Money-wise, it'll be fine. Yeah, but I, but I will also say that I think the drama is actually more interesting and exciting than the film. And oh, that yeah, is absolutely. the problem. I spent a significant amount of my time watching the film, thinking about like Olivia Wilde's supposed lack of presence on the mm-hmm. set, at which points did Flo step in. Like, mm. all of that, I found myself thinking about that actively mm. while I was watching it, and I don't think that... But I also can't. Thing. I also can't tell if any of that's really objectively no. true. I don't know. I really don't know. Mm. It's just very confusing. I still think though that I would have found it as boring and messy and just not good if all of this behind the scenes stuff I th- hadn't. Yeah. I think it would and have just been more of a surprise to yeah. us that it was bad. Yeah, we probably would have discovered during the screening rather than having two years of build well, up. To it just it. would have been one of those classic experiences that we so frequently seem to have these days, where we're really hyped for something mm-hmm. and you go and see it, and you're like, "Oh, okay, that's actually just shit." Yeah, I feel disappointed. Yeah, I think the other thing is that the drama has been interesting and to a point entertaining, but it. It hasn't been very nice because there there has been a colossal amount of misogyny around this. Oh, 100%. This entire And this film. is the thing. And it it's obvious, and I know lots of other people have said it, but quite simply, no one would have given as much of a fuck if a female, a male director was doinking his female star on set. In fact, there's been so many on-set married affairs happening that are you know, included in a BuzzFeed article, but apart from that would not have had, it would have been five minutes of inconvenience versus this entire, like three years or something run up. Um, And the backlash has been inflamed by Harry's spotlight, firstly. I think it was always going to happen. And by this gender reversal of having a female director. So I think Olivia has put a very positive PR spin on everything, as she is wont to do, as anyone in that position probably is going to do. And I don't think she's done herself a great service sometimes by doubling down, as you oh, mentioned, no. at all. However, I also think this could quite possibly tank her entire directing career. Yeah. Whereas for other male directors, they would just go on and they're not a very good director fine they just carry on making films men do this all the time and i think that is the thing is that regardless of what you think about this specific film and whether it is actually good at all um male directors have affairs with actresses other people on the the film sets constantly and it's it's just an occupational hazard it is and the amount uh, initially the amount of weight that was given to shia labeouf's statement which 
I don't even care that he's presenting video evidence. You can't, you can't, you can't even take video as gospel because it can be contextualized differently. Mm. We don't. I think there's stuff about it that is evidently shitty, but I still don't know the context for it. And the amount of weight that was that was given to his statement or whatever is just like this is a guy who like why are we paying any attention to him? I didn't need to hear from him at all. This is all just for his own gain. Well, this is why I found so much. And he's of, a liar. This is why I found so much of this to be just increasingly messy because that was the point for me where I was just like, I've had enough of this now. I do not need to hear from him in any capacity. What is this adding to any of the the discussion around this film, other than it making Olivia Wilde look even worse? And yet, for his everyone's own gain. everyone's somehow siding with him. It's what it wild i keep saying wild about olivia wild but i do feel bad for her in that respect mm. I, I think they're definitely you know i don't know what she's like on set she she probably is a pain in the ass i don't know but i think the the amount she is going to suffer or has suffered far outweighs probably what has even happened on set like about unless clash. they were smacking each other around like i don't know was it frosty between her and florence Pugh? probably the backlash far outweighs the reality of i mean in and as we'll talk about in the history of fallouts on film sets this is actually i mean it's been it's been fun but it's pretty mediocre but it's been the focus on it has been so huge because of this because of her and because of who she's now dating she's gonna suffer far worse than anyone else would so and And the other thing the other final thing i wanted to say which i just i was thinking about earlier is that like the whole narrative around this film has been so boo Olivia and so yay Florence and I love Florence Pugh I think she's brilliant and she's had some stellar moments during this run-up and the Venice thing was hilarious and she looked amazing I'm almost anxiously waiting for the tide to turn because I feel like the internet now is so keen on bigging someone up and then something happening that people decide they are disappointed with and then the knives come out oh yeah so it feels like it's happening with everyone in the spotlight especially women so i'm almost horribly anticipating the moment where we have like a really strong pro pro florence Pugh moment for like a few years and then suddenly the knives are going to come out for something the tide's going to turn do you know what i mean yeah, i, I just know, know it's going to happen yeah i do because that's what always happens now and that is what's happened with olivia wilde hmm. so i just feel kind of glum about that yeah because it just feels like it's going to happen it just feels icky doesn't it yeah yeah in so, a way it's not helpful not that that that's a depressing thing <laughs> to end on but generally this has been a ride hasn't it um the sims for harry's house expansion pack <laughs> that was my letterbox review good I like it. I dig it. I don't want to have to unpack this film ever again. I'm done with it. I don't need to. It's done now. It's forgettable, isn't it? Um, What a whole, what a sorry, sorry mess this was. Be interesting to hear other people's takes on it because actually we were comparing notes earlier and lots of people who I follow on Letterboxd actually gave it surprisingly favourable reviews and your Letterboxd seemed more negative. So yeah, um, a true marmite of a film in some regards. 100%. So as promised, in light of Don't Worry Darling and um, the the behind the scenes on set dramas mm-hmm. um, around it, uh, we thought we would talk a bit about other films that have been infamously uh, difficult. Fraught. To, fraught to um, film and put together um, for lots of different reasons. So we've picked kind of 
three each yeah. to discuss and we're going to tell each other about them. Mm-hmm. I haven't read about the ones that you've picked. No. I don't think you even know which ones I've picked. I don't picked. know, no. So, so, ooh, a mystery. Surprise. Um, so, should we kind of alternate? And yeah, just, shall we? A, a storytelling time. Yeah, can I go first? Yeah, absolutely. Because I will have the oldest one. Oh, nice. I Imagine went... if I'm like, haha, you don't. Oh. You Imagine. Do. Um, you do. I went for a classic. I yes. went for The Wizard of Oz. Lovely. From 1939. Uh, famously quite a bad production for a number of reasons. So, there were 16 writers who contributed to the screenplay which was is that also a lot that's a lot yes how many do you usually get like two writers or something yeah that are credited i suppose 16 is like from my based on i don't know what i'm putting this from that feels like uh more of like a tv show type thing you'd have like yes. a writer's room um for lots of episodes yeah that's so a lot for one film 16 contributed but it was continually reworked during the production oh. which is not good either Victor Fleming is credited as the director of Wizard of Oz. However, um, he was also joined by Richard Thorpe, George Coker, and King Vidor, um, who all of whom were uncredited. So all of them t- had taken turns to direct the film. So there were four directors. Yes, they were replaced one by one. Oh no! So like one started and then was struck. I didn't off. know that. Yeah. Oh good lord. Um, so generally, it created quite an atmosphere of chaos, which wasn't assisted particularly well by the long days that everyone was required to be on set and the really uncomfortable conditions, which included high heat, which was caused by bright lights required to shoot in Technicolor, which was obviously at the time quite a new thing. So they needed bright lights on the set. Actor Buddy Ebsen, who originally played the Tin Man in the film, was replaced after he suffered an allergic reaction to the aluminium metal oh, silver no. makeup, oh, which God. caused him to wind up in hospital in quite a critical condition. Um, Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, um, suffered severe burns on the set, as did her body double, and she spent six weeks in hospital. How did those happen, I wonder? Um, I think it was to do... There was, like, an electrical fire or something like that. And uh, the fact that she also was wearing makeup didn't help either. And then, of course, quite famously, Judy Garland Mm. was put under extreme pressure by the studio MGM and its boss, Louis B. Mayer, um, with accusations of abuse and mistreatment were being something that she mentioned heavily Mm. in later years. Um, She was encouraged to lose weight to maintain a girlish figure. There were some things I'd read about how she was required to bind her chest as well. Um, she was given benzedrine to assist with the weight uh, management and also was given uppers and downers to control her mood jo- judy garland famously then mm. had a lifetime of addiction, addiction issues and then she, yeah. that was one of the reasons that she died obviously quite young so yeah just a very like for a film that is so like positive and beloved and wonderful and beloved a children's film no less yeah just a just a really shitty behind the scenes yeah that's horrible yeah not not nice so that's really horrible yeah really set the tone well yeah um i think all of most of these examples are well especially the ones that i have um are really testament to the fact that there was so little health and safety guidance um, well, this is prime until example. fairly recently, actually. You probably get less examples now of things going wrong from a health and safety perspective. So maybe red tape is okay sometimes. Yeah. Um, my first choice was it. It was, it was. It came to my mind straight away, even though I actually haven't seen the film. Mm-hmm. So Aguirre, the Wrath of God. Yep. Which is uh, an it's an epic historical drama. It's set in South America, mm-hmm. directed by Werner Herzog. Of course, of course. I know where you're going with this. Yes. So Werner Herzog, 
uh, this is 1972. So Werner Herzog generally yep. known for being quite a character yep. on all of his film sets. Yep. Um, but this this film was particularly famous. As I said, I haven't seen it, but I have heard Wes has told me in particular about the extremely explosive relationship between Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski in particular. Um, so it was one of the first things that came to my mind when we were going to do this. There's also a documentary about this film that I haven't seen that Wes has and he keeps telling me I need to watch it. I can't remember the title of it now. I'll find it. But I bet it's really interesting to watch. I'll also preface this by saying that Klaus Kinski is obviously a piece of shit. Coming up with this example wasn't an endorsement of oh, him. Oh, no, he no, is, no. You're uh, not co-signing. He is a bad person. Yeah. Um, sorry to discuss him. So this is also the first of two films based in the jungle that I will discuss, which shows that filming in the jungle, especially in the 70s, was a very bad idea. Um, so this is the first time that Werner Herzog, German director, works with the absolute weirdo that is Klaus Kinski, who is also a German actor. They do collaborate on four further films, yeah. though. So I think there's a really interesting dynamic there where they're very explosive together, but it's one of those relationships where they can't stay away from each other. They probably quite like it. Yeah, they're each other's muses, I feel. Um, so Kinski was Herzog's first choice for the role of Aguirre. They met years before when Kinski rented a room from Herzog's family and basically ran riot for three months there. Classic. And that stuck in Herzog's mind. He was like, great, loved that guy. He's a completely hysterical madman. Mm-hmm. Um, so Herzog signed up for this, basically. Um, right at the beginning of production, the two argued about how they were going to portray Aguirre Kinski wanted to play a wild ranting madman, of course, as comes naturally to him. Herzog wanted something a bit more quieter and menacing. So they were arguing from the outset. Before each shot, Herzog would deliberately wind Kinski up. He would really piss him off, wait for tempers to flare, and then wait for the anger to quote-unquote burn itself out, and then they would start filming. I feel like deliberately winding someone like that up is going to be great. Um... Kinski was also a maniac towards crew and locals. So on one occasion, famously, he was so annoyed by the cast and crew playing cards in a hut nearby that he fired three gunshots at it and blew off the tip of an extra's finger. Jesus Christ. The natives living in the area, in the Peruvian area where they were filming, actually approached Herzog and offered to murder Kinski for him. And Herzog says that he considered the offer, but ultimately yes. decided against it. Should've that would yes. have been Werner, come cutting, on. Shot their, cutting short their romance. Um, and then when Herzog refused to fire one of the crew that Kinski didn't like, um, Kinski decided that was it. He was gone. He was leaving. And then uh, Herzog pulled out a gun, threatened to shoot Kinski and kill him, and then kill himself, which somehow persuaded Kinski to get back on board. And then that incident's also given rise to this sort of legend rumour that Herzog made Kinski act for him at gunpoint. I think that's not actually true. He says the only the only thing he did was verbally threaten Kinski in the heat of the moment. So Sure. Only. Only. Yes. Good as uh, only there. It's conducive to um great acting. Great working environment. Um, and then yeah, as I said, you'd think that that level of conflict and threatening to kill each other 
would put a dampener on their relationship that but they carried on clearly they love each other they're drawn to one another it's also worth noting that herzog's other movies he, he i mean he's just batshit anyway isn't yeah, he's he batshit. he's Famously so, he refuses to work in studios. So for Fitzcarraldo, (laughs) they spent three years building a real boat, which they could then literally pull over a mountain into the jungle. Also on that film, someone was... Did you know this, that someone was bit by a poisonous snake? No. And they had to cut off their own leg with a chainsaw to stop themselves going into cardiac arrest. Yeah. Fucking um, hell. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, he also likes to try all of the stunts himself before getting anyone else to do them. So he ate um, a bowl full of maggots with Christian Bale on the set of Rescue Dawn. Um, and there's also a film of him eating a shoe for a bet. Oh, yeah. I, I'm aware of the shoe thing. The shoe thing. Yeah. I actually think that was one of the first things I ever learned about Werner Herzog was that he ate a shoe. It's a good way to start. I mean, why not? We're going to review that in our next episode. Sets the tone. Yeah, it does. Um, so yes, that's that's my first onset conflict. Jesus Christ! Right, uh, bringing it back down to to earth slightly. I've gone for the room. Ah, oh, yes, one of my favourites. Um, so cult Classic. film, the room is a drama about a man, his fiance, and his best friend who end up in a love triangle, and it's very notable for being one of the worst films ever made. And of course. Um, inspired a book which then inspired a film that was directed by James Franco called The Disaster Artist. It's written, directed and stars Tommy Wiseau, a man who made many bad decisions throughout the film's production, much to the frustration of those around him, particularly regarding the budget of $6 million, which the film had. For example, um, he did things like he refused to pay for air conditioning on set. Um, He built himself a private bathroom. He refused to let the cast have access to bottles of water. He ignored the help and advice of other members of cast and crew instead taking the film's production in his own direction he shot on 35 millimeter film and digital but then completely disposed of the film's digital footage later completely just got rid of it um he also spent five thousand dollars a week on the billboard advertising the film despite it only grossing nineteen hundred dollars on its initial release um The source of the film's funding also caused discomfort to those working on it because it was self-funded. So Tommy was, oh, he, he came up with $6 million. Wow. But he also refused to compl- to explain where he obtained the money. There's lots of rumours about it coming from money laundering, <laughs> drugs, anything like that. But it's just very funny. So The Room has this, like I said, cult feel around it. Have you ever seen The Room? I haven't. Oh my god. I've, you should watch I've heard it a lot about it. It's yeah. excruciating. Yeah. But now it obviously has this cult thing where it shows cinemas around the world. Um, Prince Charles Cinema yeah, in London yeah. do a thing where Tommy Wiseau and his friend Greg who star in the film will do a presentation and uh, you know they will present it to everyone there are, there are things where much like Rocky Horror Picture Show mm. where there are now things where in the duration of the film people will do things like throw spoons because they're framed spoons everywhere yeah. but there are lots of other controversies around behind the scenes just regarding the sex scenes and just Tommy Wiseau is quite a character and he essentially just in a slightly megalomaniac type of way just wanted to create this film which uh, I hadn't realised until I was doing research for this um, started as a play he wrote it as a play initially for some reason after he'd seen the talented Mr Ripley he was inspired to write the story of The Room 
turned it into a play and then turned it into a novel and then realised the only way that his vision was going to come together was by Doing him self-funding a film. Men and their visions, eh? Honestly. He's, it's just interesting when you've got someone that is such a strong character yeah. and he's basically... Like, he also, he would buy all of the equipment yeah. rather than renting it, which is traditional in filmmaking. It's well, like, that just doesn't make sense. He just would buy it. Well, why would you do that? That's just Not silly. good economic sense. No. Um, but no yeah. wonder his budget was yeah hmm. interesting we should watch it though because yeah. it's all of the it's an it's an example of where all of the behind the scenes chaos actually adds to your viewing experience yeah. so it's sort of against don't worry darling in that yes. regard it's that when you're watching it you are really acutely aware of what was happening behind the scenes and how it was slightly falling apart and that really leans into the slightly ramshackled approach that the film has love it um Let's yeah watch chaos it. yeah chaos um, another man with a big vision. Uh, this was the other film that first came to mind uh, when we were discussing, talking about this sort of topic on the podcast. Uh, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yep. And The Shining, which is one of my favourite films, but infamously a nightmare to make. Stanley Kubrick, a visionary. Amazing. Extremely difficult dude. Um, he expects a lot. Yep. He puts his cast through a lot of physical and emotional turmoil yep. for the sake of his vision. Yep. So again... Male directors and their visions. Yeah, what is it about them? Um, One of the biggest problems with Stanley Kubrick is that he expects an insane number of takes. So I read something, it was something along the lines of the first like 37 takes are not regarded as real takes anyway for him. David Fincher, big fan of doing that too. Oh, good, good, good. So Scatman Crothers, who plays Dick Halloran amazingly in this film, he cried at around take 85. 85 85 of showing Danny and Wendy around the hotel kitchen because he was so tired and frustrated and he just said, what do you want from me, man? Like, I mean, um, I'd do the same thing. Yeah, um, 85 is not the highest number in this. The shot of Shelley Duvall waving the baseball bat in front of Jack Nicholson required 127 <laughs> takes. Did it require that many? It did not, I don't think. Uh, and then the scene, Paul Scatman Crothers, where Dick Halloran tells Danny that he has an ability to shine, was shot 148 times. I think this film breaks the Guinness Book of Records. That's a yeah. child you're doing that yeah. to. Yeah. Kubrick defended his actions, blaming the actors, saying, quote, it happens when actors are unprepared. This is what David Fincher does. Oh, see, the, the parallels here. Mm. Mm. The shoots were so long that Jack Nicholson slept on the floor in between takes because he was so exhausted. Brilliant. Um, and he's got a lot of energy, Jack Nicholson. Yeah, so especially that time. you him. To add to the dreadfully unsettling atmosphere of the film, Kubrick decided that he, much like Werner Herzog, he wanted to um, upset Jack Nicholson to get him in the role, the, the crazed role. Get him in the headspace. Yeah. Jack Nicholson apparently hates cheese sandwiches. This what? is a Sorry, thing. Just what a weird thing to hate. I love cheese sandwiches. Yeah, imagine right. hating Nothing, cheese sandwiches. Oh, cheese, a cheese sandwich on white bread. Ooh, it's a classic. With butter. Um, so Kubrick deliberately fed him cheese sandwiches for two weeks and would not allow him to eat anything else. That just seems not okay. Which just means seems mean. That seems mean. I I'd be passing with flying colours. I'd be gobbling up the cheese sandwiches. You'd be fucking elated. Most of Kubrick's films were shot in London because he had a really intense fear of flying and refused to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, so The Shining was filmed at Elstree Studios in London, but they did need some outdoor imagery of Oregon and Montana. So he sent an entirely separate crew out there to film without any supervision whatsoever. 
great. That seems foolish. Yes, very foolish. Um, and then also add to add to the chaos, which is not anyone's fault, but it is unfortunate. At a really late stage of filming, there was a huge fire at the studios in London, which destroyed two sound stages in full, including masses of sections of the set. So big fire, lots of stuff destroyed, chaotic. But the person who suffered most on this film was, of course, Shelley Duvall. Yep. Back in February of 2021, last year, she spoke quite openly in an interview. I mean, Shelley Duvall is amazing and she doesn't, she's retired. She doesn't, she's not in film anymore, but she just seems like a wonderful woman. But she talked really openly about how traumatic it was to work on this film set. So she says that the role was emotionally and physically exhausting because she would have to coerce her body to be in a state of constant panic in order to appease Kubrick's expectations for Mm -hmm. the character. So um, she would induce emotional pain and sorrow by listening to sad songs on her Walkman and reliving unhappy memories. So she would quite literally re-traumatise herself over and over again in order to do these scenes, which sounds awful. Yeah, she would have to run around, obviously, the whole time screaming and crying for hundreds of takes at a time. But then... According to Nicholson, he said that Kubrick was completely different with him and it was very obvious on set that his treatment of, although the cheese sandwich thing says otherwise, but Nicholson says that Kubrick acted one way with him on set and then was completely different and just completely tyrannical with Shelley Duvall on set. So treatment of women across a lot of these films, not great. great. So uh, Kubrick's daughter Vivian corroborated this and said that he told everyone on set not to show any sympathy for Duval and even told them to ignore her completely when she was on set. That's horrible. He never complimented her scenes. He constantly praised Nicholson, who was right next to her. And one point, the isolation and the torture for the role was so stressful that Duval started losing her hair because she had just been pushed to the brink. Later, she said that Kubrick in between shoots was really lovely and Mm -hmm. would speak to her at length but during shooting he just completely switched tactics in order to get the performances that he wanted so actually a really horrible horrible set for a film that again is seen as so iconic and so beloved it's a real shame it's just horrible that Shelley Duvall had to go through that so props to her because she is one of the best performances in that film hand down Um, but yeah just really poor Shelley Duvall yeah Mean. Hard times. Mean. Mean, mean, mean. Um, my last one, I've gone for something I'm really not convinced you're going to have seen because literally, why would you? I'm surprised I've seen it, but it's burlesque. I've seen burlesque. Oh, good. Okay, fine. It's because I worked at Blockbuster yeah. in uh, whatever year it came out. Good film. So... Oh, it's a fun film. <clears throat> so, yeah. So, uh, stars both Cher and Christina Aguilera. <coughs> I didn't know there was on-set drama for this, so this well, is good Well, to... I didn't until I was listening to a podcast the other day that was about uh, Don't Worry Darling and box office and stuff, and they, they cited this particular, the drama behind the scenes of this film. Oh. Um, so, the, but there wasn't any, there was no on-set drama between Cher and Christina Aguilera, which you may think because... <laughs> They are two famed divas. Um, it was actually friction between the director, Steve Antin, and Clint Culpepper, who was the then president of Screen Gems. That's a great name. Say his name again. Clint Culpepper. That's a great what name. What a good name. Uh, he was the pre- uh, president of Screen Gems, which was the production company that were putting out the film. The pair, who at that point had been a couple for two decades, but they oh. never worked together. Oh. They had a sequence of onset arguments, which became so bad that crew members began taking notes 
in case anything was needed as evidence. Very sensible. Um, one clash, for example, saw Clint pouring iced tea over Sean's head, forcing him to fall back into a rack of costumes. <laughs> Cher became so triggered by the hostility that she told Clint at one stage that she wanted, quote, a karma set. Christina Aguilera's manager, Erzing Azov, um, called Culpepper on the phone and explained to him that Aguilera had grown up in a household marred by abuse and the onset yelling was making it difficult for her to be present and at work. The editing of the shoot as well was also fraught. There was a, an edit that was presented and went down so badly that it almost derailed Ooh. the even release of it. Um, the ending in particular was reworked and reshot with help but from Cher, who basically put her foot down and exercised her right as a, as a star, her star power, and decided to work with her own editor to save oh my the God. film. Um, it was also rumoured that she was so unhappy with the film that she was reluctant to even promote it. I think both her and Christina Aguilera did promote it. Well, and Florence Pugh. Well, exactly. Antin was a was a first time director as well, and there was lots of sort of discussion in in the aftermath of this of how he was basically saying like, oh you know i was underprepared blah blah i think he'd i think he directed television and he'd done some music videos as well i actually think he'd worked with Cher before um, i was gonna say filming with Cher is uh, quite a big ask yeah this is what happens film. when you're working with your partner for the first time yeah and don't you just clash don't shit where you eat don't, don't shit do where it. you eat don't work um, no a, no in in work relationships absolutely not no so um who'd have known though watching burlesque what a romp it was. I did not know that at Didn't all. Didn't know, That's neither did I. Yeah. Um, I went for another classic. It's a big one. It's Apocalypse Now. Good, I'm glad that you covered this. I, I almost didn't touch it because I knew that you would. Yeah. So let's go. So I had a really interesting conversation with Wes at length about this as well because he's very invested in um, the Apocalypse Now backstory. And I think I knew half of it, but there were definitely details I didn't know. Mm. Do you know the full story of all of it? I know that... Obviously, you know that Martin Sheen had a heart attack yes. on the set. And there are probably other things that you'll mention that I'll go like, Yeah, oh, yeah I mean, it's that. there are some details that I did not know. So it was very interesting. I think there are podcasts out. I can't remember what the podcast was called. We'll link to it in the show notes. There's a podcast about this that Wes said was very good um, and is worth listening to. Um, I didn't even know where to begin with this, with Francis Ford Coppola's film, because it sounds like such a nightmare from beginning to end Hell. and was so vast. Um, I got a lot of this from an independent article by Robert Sellers who outlined it quite well. So we'll link to that as well. So they're in the Philippines for this film. Within a few days of shooting, Coppola decides that he doesn't like Harvey Keitel, who is um, who was cast as uh, Captain Benjamin Willard. Doesn't like him, doesn't like the way he's acting. So he leaves the film and they bring in Martin Sheen. Just to briefly pause upon this, yeah. I would have fucking loved to have seen Harvey Keitel in, in Apocalypse Now. Oh, there you go. Imagine. Like, yeah. Martin Sheen is, apparently, is great, but... Apparently he wasn't good enough. Imagine. Interesting. So they had to do about four days of reshoots. So fortunately it was near the beginning at that point. So they brought in Martin Sheen. It's also worth noting that Coppola was literally writing the film as he went along. Yep. Didn't know how to end it. Wasn't sure. So just making it up as he went along. Great. Always. Bearing in mind it's based on a Joseph Conrad yeah. novel as well. So it's like you've got the source. You had the source so. material. But yeah. he's like, I'm just not sure how to end this. Have you checked the book? Have you checked the book? Have you read the last page? Um, people were literally coming down with tropical diseases because they were in the jungle. So Sam Bottoms, who an <laughs> actor, Great he name. got hookworm and it fucked up his liver. Yep. It damaged his liver quite badly. Um, the helicopters they were using in all the combat sequences, they had to keep stopping because they were being recalled by President Marcos, who was using them in a war. So they were <laughs> borrowing helicopters and then had to keep returning them. Great. Two months in, 
Typhoon Olga lands and destroys up to 80% of the sets. So some of the crew were stranded in a hotel and others were stuck in small houses and completely immobilised. Um, months worth of scheduled shoots had to be canned because the sets were not there anymore and most of the cast and crew had to go back to the US for eight weeks <laughs> whilst they rebuilt. At one point, the entire payroll was stolen. Brilliant. Despite having bodyguards in the jungle, <clears throat> someone nicked it all. I mean... Um, and they had a very specific budget for this, most of which I think Coppola had put... He put up quite put a lot of it himself, didn't he? Himself, didn't so he? I don't think the payroll being stolen was very helpful. So they're six weeks behind at this point, and they're starting to fall behind on budget as well. So they've, they've got, they're about two million in debt at this point. When they returned to set, some of the crew had mutinied and were like, I'm not going back to this, didn't go with him. Martin Sheen told people that he was worried he might not live through the film, which is horrible for Bodo. Isn't that horrible? Horrible. Uh, there are complaints about rubbish and dead rats everywhere, which the production designer said created an accurate atmosphere. Yeah. Dead rats are the least of their worries because there were dead corpses being used on the film, which is a very famous um, film fact, is that they discovered at some point that the cadaver that were cadavers props that were being used were actually really real dead bodies that they had somehow bought off a grave robber that they didn't realize was a grave robber they thought he was just i don't know sourcing bodies legally for um medical purposes uh, he was arrested and sent to jail they managed to prove that they didn't know that these were stolen bodies great uh, then marlon brando arrives so he arrives to shoot his scenes as Walter Kurtz. He's 21 stone. He's massively overweight. Not in a good state at this point. Not in a good state. He's not in his best state for a quite handsome man. Obviously, this character is supposed to be very thin because he's in the jungle and yeah. he's battling. He's quite large. Um, and he's also not happy about being quite large. Um, he also hadn't learned any lines and didn't know anything about his character. So they had to shut down production for a week so that Coppola could actually bring him up to speed. So 900 people had to wait around a week for Brandon to even know who his character was Isn't and what the insane? story was. Nuts. And then when they were shooting, Coppola basically had to dress Brando in black to try and make him look slimmer, film only his face and then get a body double in to play all of his other scenes where you saw the rest of his body to make him look taller. Then to make matters so much worse, Dennis Hopper. So My he's filming scenes and he's very fucked up. He's on coke and he's drunk and production had to medicate him so that he could do his scenes. So rather than like Judy Garland being pushed to medicate, here they're actually trying to negotiate what he's already on by trying to medicate him, I think kind of legally basically, so that he could actually do his job. Can I just say it's not the point, but Dennis Hopper is so hot in I know, Apocalypse Now. I know, it's insane. Like genuinely insane. Wild. Just um, looking now, sorry. Famous didn't leave, famously didn't shower though. Apparently he stinks. So hot but stinky. Well. You know a few other people like that, Rob Pattinson. Marlon Brando hated him so much that uh, they couldn't do any scenes together and they had to be filmed separately on alternate nights. Brilliant. Which I'm sure didn't do much for the schedule. Um, did you know this, that Don Dennis Hopper also got Lawrence Fishburne, who was a teenager, hooked on heroin during this film? Um, I think I did know that, yeah. <laughs> That's isn't insane. That, isn't that messy? That's grim. Yeah. Um, then there's Martin Sheen, <laughs> who also has a drink problem. Yep. 
And when they filmed the opening scene of Willard in the hotel room for yep. me losing it, famously, Sheen was completely hammered. He shit-faced. Completely convinced the crew to keep filming yeah. as he Has lost like a his genuine... mind, had a mental breakdown, went ballistic, punched a mirror, cut his hand, tried to attack Coppola, yep. having a full mental breakdown, but was like, yo, film this, because I think it's juicy. Great. Then he has a heart attack. He has a heart attack, yeah. At 36. Yeah. Uh, he struggles to, for a quarter of a mile to reach help. Um, and then he told people he had heat stroke because he was worried that the film would be stalled again if they found out he was having a heart attack. Um, until he was able to return to the set, his brother had to fill in for him and provide vo- voiceovers for his character. Yeah. Then uh, Coppola had an epileptic seizure. Yeah. Uh, he suffered a nervous breakdown and on three occasions told everyone he was going to kill himself. By the end, the film schedule had run 10 times over what it was planned and the budget had doubled to 25 million. Um, and Coppola obviously fun- faced financial ruin if it didn't find success. There's more post-production but drama, but I will leave it there because that is quite enough. It's lucky that it turned into one of the, regarded as one of the greatest films Fucking ever. Fucking great film but- though. Oh my god, mess! I'm surprised. The thing is, you no would die. You would never get away with any of this now. Never. It's such a, never. it's such an iconically bad production with all of that stuff that you've just mentioned. And it's funny to think about. Like you just wouldn't get away with it now. No, you just tropical wouldn't. diseases and no heroin addiction is mess. wild. Messy. It's all of those people, all of those men in particular, those actors, and and on Coppola himself as well. Obviously, all just being in like famously quite bad points of their life oh my god and coming everyone's together everyone's fucked up honestly what a Good that film, makes though. I think that film makes Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog look it's a prime example of how the legend of a film is just as good as the film itself yeah absolutely doesn't detract from it um, can I just tell you another one that's quite funny as a bonus yes before we finish I've put a little bonus on mine as well my, ba- so my on. bonus was David Fincher versus everyone great so already talked I've alluded about it, to yeah. the fact that David Fincher um, famously broke Jake Gyllenhaal on the set of Zodiac um, Gyllenhaal famously spoke out in the, in the film's aftermath about his frustrations over Fincher's need to do multiple takes of the same scene over and over uh, Fincher came back on this comment and basically just implied that like he doesn't have to do it to actors who don't need it which is a bit of a salty sort of J. John Hall but fine um, Gone Girl however was almost derailed after Ben Affleck and David Fincher fell out over a baseball cap so long time king of Boston Ben Affleck refused to wear a Yankees hat as he's a through and through Boston Red oh Sox fan oh my god um, Fincher wouldn't tolerate this slight switch because he was adamant that the character that Affleck was playing would be wearing a Yankees hat, despite the fact that Affleck himself insisted that wearing it would ruin his life and reside him to just consistent critique from his hometown friends for the foreseeable future. Basically, filming came to a halt until they came to a compromise, and the compromise was a Mets hat. So... Ben Affleck basically wouldn't wear a Yankees hat, but he would wear a Mets hat. Which this is hilarious, hilarious, by the hysterical. way. It's Isn't ridiculous. it funny? Absolutely ridiculous. I just wanted to throw it in there because David Fincher is known for being very Kubrick-esque in that he just is, is just loves multiple takes because he just wants to get to a point with his actors. And Ben Affleck, also like a petty him. man, it would seem. Absolutely, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, my bonus was um, Blade Trinity. Oh, yes, I'd seen this. Um which is the third Blade film in 2004. There, there were, there's not like loads, but I just thought it was very entertaining. So this is all Wesley, Wesley Snipes, who um, is hilarious. Love Wesley Snipes. Just what a character. 
Um, so he firstly was not keen on the script, nor was he keen on David S. Goya, who was the um, director. He'd written all three films in the franchise, but he'd come in as the director in um, the third film. So there was an AV Club interview with Pat Oswald where most yes. of this came out. Mm -hmm. So um, Oswald said that Snipes refused to come out of his trailer and just smoked weed all day. Great. Fair. What a life. Um, Snipes tried to strangle Goya after seeing a black actor on set who was wearing a shirt with the word garbage on it. Apparently he was like a club kid, so, you know. Yeah. Sassy. Um, Snipes accused Goya of being a racist motherfucker and tried to strangle him over it. Yeah. And then the story goes that Goya approached some bikers one evening and said that he would pay them if they would be his security on set. And Snipes was so freaked out that after that, he only communicated via post-it notes. And he signed all of them from Blade because he stayed in character the whole time. I'm going to start doing that. Method acting. From April. No, not, no, I'm just going to sign everything from Blade. From Blade. From Blade. From Blade. Um, and then uh, Snipes refused to shoot scenes, so they had to get stand-ins or use CGI. Great. He also refused to deliver any a lot of the script. So Ryan Reynolds in particular had to improvise a lot. Sorry, just remember that Ryan Reynolds is in Ryan Reynolds film. is in Blade Trinity. Awful. Um, uh, and this is the bit that I like. Apparently, Pat Oswald was saying that they would all just stand and watch a scene being filmed um, and would basically think of things that Ryan Reynolds could say like puns or anything that might antagonise Wesley Snipes and then they would cut to Wesley Snipes' face not doing anything because that's all they could get from him. Brilliant. So I just really I just really enjoyed the idea of that. Safe to say Goya will probably not be doing any other Blade films with Wesley Snipes. From Blade. From Blade. <laughs> um, they were good, thanks. 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 I had fun. I enjoyed sharing. that. It was like my favourite murder, but for um, on-set fallouts. <laughs> on-set dramas. Yeah. Oh, God, honestly. I mean, don't worry, darling, pales into insignificance. It doesn't. Those. When you when you have to go over the minutiae of every single thing that happened on the set of Apocalypse Now, I think that Olivia Wilde... Um, Being a bit frosty with Florence Pugh or whatever. It's nothing just, really, is it? Not. Miss Flo has suddenly Miss not seemed quite as tantalising as I thought it was. Miss Flo. Miss Flo. So that's us done. You can find us on Twitter, we're at the thirst, and Instagram, we're at the thirst pod, or you can drop us an email on the thirst pod at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of any of the things that we discussed today. Um, you can also subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and give us a nice review because it does help people to find us with ease. Um, we'll also make sure that we share some links to anything we mentioned on our blog, the thirstpod.wordpress.com, and also have a look in the show notes as well because we will drop a few things in there. Um, Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.